Hey everyone, welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with wonderful people from this wonderful island to find out why they came here. I'm also going to find out the stories that brought them to this point in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Julia Nichols. Now, most of you or some of you might recognize Julia as the lady driving around the island in a green convertible with a huge smile on her face and, dare I say, iconic blonde bob? Because it might be. It might be iconic. I think it is. But today we're going to find out more. We're going to find out more about Julia, such as the importance of growing food to her. We're going to hear about an important creature in Julia's past with the first name of Silver. And we're also going to hear her speak about the importance of silence. Here is my interview with Julia Nichols. Thank you for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Excellent. I'm glad to be here. Right on. Uh, so anyway, the first question that we're going to be starting off with on this show with uh, everybody is, what brought you to Pender Island? Well, I've been to Pender Island a number of times, but what brought me here was Gregory. I met him in 2003. Uh, the first time I laid eyes upon him was when he was in a production of uh, Twelfth Night. And I saw him come out as a priest, and I really, really liked that character. And they did a really neat thing where they had everybody walking up through the woods afterwards, and they could shake the hands of all the characters in the play. It's very cool. And I stopped at the priest, and I wanted to tell him what an amazing job he did of acting. Uh, But there were people behind me, and I couldn't stop very long. Anyhow, the next day I was at the ferry terminal and I was picking up a friend and there was only one person there at the whole ferry terminal. And he was standing there looking out and I walked up to him and we started to chat and I didn't recognize him as the guy in the, in the play. And, but we had the most amazing conversation and the ferry was coming and my friend was coming and I wanted to push the ferry away because I wanted to continue to talk. And he asked me for my phone number so that we could meet up. And um, the problem was this friend was coming for the day and then we were going home together. And so she was only here overnight and for the next day. And I couldn't leave my friend to go on a date or anything. So he said, and then I said, you know, she sleeps in big time. So first thing in the morning we could meet. So I said, okay, I took my number and where I was staying, phoned me up, and he asked me if I fancied a walk. Nobody's ever asked me if I fancied anything before, <laughs> but he asked me if I fancied a walk, and I said yes, and we met next morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. We went for a walk. Where'd you go for a walk? Around the Clam Bay Loop. It's a famous walk on Pender along Port Washington Road and Clam Bay Road. It's a whole loop. Okay. And what was the weather like that day? Beautiful. Beautiful. Everything about that day was so beautiful. Okay. So you meet up for a a. 6am walk with him and uh, you go and what did you guys talk about that day? Oh, we've gone over that and we've tried to figure that out. What was our conversation? I do know the point where I was 
telling him that I had been to this wonderful play and I'm not into Shakespeare at all, but there was this priest in the play who was really, really amazing. And I remember the place and he turned to say, that was me. <laughs> and it was, it was him. So you go for this walk and then I guess you meet up with your friend after you're done walking. Yeah. And, uh, and then you go back home. Where was home at this point? Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah. I was living in kits in an apartment and I was working in Richmond. Because I don't know, and this is an interesting question, what kind of work were you doing in Richmond? I was a school counselor in high school. Okay. Yeah. So oh. and I could bike to work from, from Kitts across the uh, Arthur Lang Bridge right into Richmond and back. And yeah, so it was a good place to live, to wow. stay in shape. You used to bike to work from Kitts to Richmond? Yeah. Wow. There was... Uh, when we met, it was just before my 50th birthday, and I had a friend there... Honey Helper, and she was in her 60s, and she biked with me. Her name was Honey Helper? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So your biking buddy was Honey Helper. Yeah. Hepburn, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Hepburn. Yes. Okay, Honey Hepburn. Okay, that's even better than Honey Helper, but... Yes. Okay. No. It sounds like a rabbit oh, she in some was, sort of... She was wonderful. Yeah. And we biked to work together. Great. Mm -hmm. So you were living in Kits, working in Richmond. You have this uh, uh, profound experience with a man on Pender Island. And what, what are you thinking at this time? Well, this was a turning point for me because I actually, the reason that I went to Pender was I wanted to spend a week by myself as sort of a, I had read about these vision quests and I didn't eat for a week. All I drank was water and I just didn't read anything, no TV, nothing. I just went to this place that belonged to Hanny Halpern. By the way, it was her cottage I was staying at. Gosh, I've got to call Hanny up and tell her <laughs> how much she's affected my life. Um, so I was on this place on Magic Lake. My vision that I came up with was that I was not going to date and I was not going to have any relationship. Uh, like I was just going to have friends and dating had been kind of painful. It wasn't a fun thing for me at all. I kept getting hurt. So I thought that's enough. I won't do it anymore. I'll just have friends and I can be happy this way. And so I was really clear that I was open to having friends. I love my friends. They're very important, but I was not going to date or be with somebody. And I, I was really clear that that's where I was. And I told him, we could be friends, but we'll never be more than friends. It's what I told him. And I changed my mind. <laughs> okay. So you talk about a week-long vision quest. Yes. Uh, had you heard of Pender before? Or? Oh, I had been to Pender many times. Every time I came to Pender, it was wonderful. We had a boat when I, I was married before, and we had a boat and we kept it at Otter Bay for a while. Another time I came over with my kids um, and stayed in a cottage and my parents rented a place and we stayed there and we hitchhiked around Pender and we just loved it. Yeah. Okay. Every every time I came to Pender, I, I really liked it. Well, I just want to get back to the uh, vision quest because I'm totally intrigued by that. Yeah. So what made you decide to spend a week in solitude just drinking water and, and not really inputting too much? I just wanted to figure out my life. I was feeling very lost. I didn't know if... Uh, what I should do. I was feeling extremely tired. Um, my kids were growing up. Uh, they had all left 
home, at home except for one who was going to leave home. I thought my life is getting more and more lonely. As I said, dating was not a positive experience for me. So I just thought I need to figure things out. I, I want to be happy and I have to figure out where I want my life to go. And I thought I don't want any input from anybody. I want to do this by myself. I took my dog. Bo was his name. May rest in peace. <laughs> and I just didn't want to have my days even punctuated with food. I just wanted to find my deepest core and find the answer to where my life will go. Find some direction from my own self. And up until that point, had you done anything like that before? I had been at a Buddhist monastery before and they meditated and, and they had something where they did a silent meditation. And although I didn't enter into the silent meditation there, I had a home in East Vancouver before I sold it and moved to the apartment. And for the first week after school was finished, I always had a week of silence because I was so tired. I just didn't want to talk to anybody. So, and I wanted to stay home and I didn't feel like I had to go to the monastery to do that. I could just be quiet. And that was a rejuvenating week where I just didn't talk to anybody. Neat. And how did you get involved in going to the Buddhist monastery? And where, and where was the Buddhist monastery you went to? In the south of France. Wow. South of Bordeaux. Yes. Yeah. Between Libourne and Born, uh, and Bernac, there's right between those two small villages is a Buddhist monastery run by Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a Vietnamese monk. Okay. Yes. So how did you discover that monastery and make the choice to uh, go initially? A friend of mine mentioned it and said, we said, let's go. And we went. And I took my son Misha with me. And he was how old? 18. Uh, yes, 17. 17. It's last year of high school. Nice. And was that the first time that you had uh, traveled internationally with him? Yes. Neat. Yes. So that was his first big trip away from... It was. It was. Okay. Yeah. And how, how did that go between mother and son on that uh, that trip? It had its up and downs. <laughs> Mostly good. Mostly very good. Yeah. I mean, well, we were six weeks and that's a long time to spend together. And so, but it was very good. Yeah. Right on. When when I was um, 20, my mom took my sister and I to Greece and Turkey, and it was a great experience. It was so nice because I, I wasn't looking forward to going. I was kind of at odds with it. I had a new girlfriend, mm -hmm. and it was such a nice experience to uh, to have. And it really got me uh, excited about international travel. And if I look back at that, and I think, well, if my mom didn't make that happen for me, I don't think I would have had that much of a desire. So has your son subsequently done a bit of traveling? Oh, my goodness. Yes. He's gone to China. He taught English in China. He's been to Africa. Yeah, he's a traveler. He's on the go. Okay. A lot. All right. Okay, so bringing it back to uh, 2003 with uh, with Greg here. So you uh, you go back home. Oh, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about uh, meeting this man and think when, things are changing? Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, so we're phoning each other and we're meeting over the summer. This happened in July. So we're meeting over the summer um, in different places. And then and we went on a bicycle trip. Uh, in Victoria. I went to see him on Pender after that. I went for a visit, just a day visit, come in the morning, go back at night. And then he was going through Toronto to go to, back to work at the end of the summer. And I picked him up and took him to the airport. And then we, I started phoning him every morning. <laughs> 
when I got up. It was so nice to hear his voice. And then my mother got sick in November, and I went over to help her in the hospital and see her through her surgery. And Gregory picked me up at the airport, and that's when I decided we could be more than friends. (laughs) And it was it changed. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, and then I'm going to assume you moved to Pender after that because you're living here now. You know, I was thinking about that. When, when is one place home and another place not home? Uh, we were, so after that, when he came back after Christmas, so he, he worked for a term to Centennial College, and then he came back and uh, he was just going through a divorce and had been separated, and he was moving into another house. And I came every weekend, and then I came all summer. So where was I living? Was I living in my apartment, or was I more living on Pender? I just know that every Sunday night when it was time to leave and go back on the ferry, I would I would just give so much to be able to not go on that ferry and stay there. I wanted to stay. And he said, well, Maybe someday, you know, I'd have to stop working and that would be something I would love to do. I just wanted to stay on Pender. Yeah. Well, it is an interesting question is when a place becomes home versus uh, mm-hmm. not. And you know, what I'm hearing you saying is that the sense of home was more tied to a person rather than a place. Is that correct? Definitely. But the place was pretty awesome too. Yeah. It was mostly the the person. and But then... You know, I was there every weekend, and then I spent we spent the whole summer together. Then we went back to his place in Toronto to sell his house, and then came back to Pender again. And he moved into my apartment with me, and I did another year, and then I moved over to Pender. All right. So when you uh, when you made that move officially, but getting all your stuff, moving over to Pender, what what part of the island did you move to? Where I am now. We've always been in the same place. Okay, and for our listeners, uh, where is that? On Portwash Road, uh, about halfway between Port Washington Docks and the Lumberyard. And yeah, I never want to leave there. I want to live there forever. Fantastic. As long as I'm alive. I just, it's it's home. Right on. Yeah. We were just talking uh, before we started the interview and uh, having some tea, and I was telling Julia that the first place I ever lived on Bender was just a few doors down and had uh-huh. a similar experience. And uh, Port Wash, it's a, it's a really nice, nice part of the island. It is. It is. Definitely. <laughs> okay, let's backtrack a little bit here further uh-huh. into your life. Uh, what, uh, what were you like as a teenager, Julia? Oh, um, I wasn't expecting that question. What was I like as a teenager? I was painfully shy. Not very outgoing, I don't think. I was passionate about horses. I loved my horse uh, and and riding. Did some three day eventing and competed, and I loved doing that. Lived and breathed for my horse and horseback riding. Okay, so you had a horse. Where were you living? At Windsor, Ontario, and there was a stable out there. I ended up marrying the son of the people who owned the stable and who became a vet. And I moved out here, out out to BC with him, and he had a veterinary practice here. And so we lived out in Langley, and he practiced veterinary medicine, and I ran the clinic. And I had three sons out in Langley. Okay. Well, I'm so curious about you being a painfully shy teenager loving horses. Uh, yeah. tell, tell me more. Okay. Uh, 
I was one of five siblings. We did a lot of hiking. We were a very outdoor family, outdoor oriented. I actually wanted to get away from my family as much as I could and get to see my horse, which was a distance away. So getting rides to it was always a little bit difficult until I got my license. That made it easier. And I just loved riding and, and horses. And What was your horse's name? Silver. Silver Monarch. <laughs> Did you name the horse? No, he came with that name. And he was a rotter. He was a, a very nasty horse. He kicked, he bit, he was terrible. And I decided that I was going to love this horse so much that he would become kind, and he never did. (laughs) (laughs) So he taught me a lot. He taught me that you have to put your foot down with horses and not tolerate certain things. They're big animals, and they need to be respectful of you or else they're dangerous. And he taught me that, and I finally learned it, although I tried to deny it for a long time. Couldn't change a horse's stripes. No, not this horse. I had a lot of very gentle horses, but my first one was not gentle. All right. So you loved horseback riding. What was it about horseback riding that you uh, you loved so much? I felt free, especially. I, I learned that if you have control on your over your horse and you can trust your horse and work with him, you can gallop and be free. But if you're out of control, you're not. So you have to have control in order to be free. And you can have lots of freedom and joy with horses, but they have to be um, listening to you and you have to work with them. Yeah. And I guess this is, you know, obviously you were given lessons, you were coached in this and uh, and probably it sounds like you understood this pretty well at, at that age. I finally learned it, but it was a rough goal. It's a lot of tears and I didn't want to, I wanted my horse to to do everything out of love, you know, and I had to learn that that's not why they do it. They do things because they can't get away with doing what they want. So then they'll do what you want them to do. And that was a learning experience for me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, horses are interesting creatures. I I never really have spent too much time around horses. It was a a summer I spent working in the Yukon, and they had uh, some horses on the property there. And in the middle of the night, I had to go outside to go to the washroom and and the horses were very nearby and uh, multiple evenings the horses would come over mm. and uh, say hello to me and I thought this is great I'm having a connection with a horse this is fantastic <laughs> until I finally realized that oh actually they're just coming over to me so hopefully the mosquitoes are going to get off of them and go towards me <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. (laughs) It was was not a loving gesture on their part. It was just, you know, I'm standing out here with all these mosquitoes on me and I hope some of them go on you now. I would say I was a child of the 60s. I believed in love and peace and uh, nonviolence and I haven't changed in that way. But I do know that you can't be a pushover and you have to have control on certain things. And I love freedom. I love having the freedom of my days now and not having to work. Love that. And choosing what I want to do. And I still very strongly believe in nonviolence, but I also believe in having control over things and making things work. Mm-hmm. And to having structure, which I had to learn. And where do you think you learned that structure in particular? Like? I think around horses. Uh, and that I had to be the person in charge with these horses 
And once they realized my my relationship with my horse completely changed when I said, hey, you listen to me. You don't step on my foot. You don't bite me. And if you do, you're in trouble. And, you know, if I say go over that jump, you are going to do it. And so we worked it through and it was a good learning experience. That's really interesting because I think that uh, so many of us have particular ways that we want things to play out in our lives. And it's a really interesting realization to come to, to see that, oh, you know what, this isn't going to work the way I had planned on, I hope it would work. And so that sounds like a beautiful realization to come to that you have to sort of shift your perspective a bit in order to uh, accomplish what you want to accomplish. Yeah. And I I don't like hierarchies. You know, I, I went into teaching because there was something that happened. There was a Sullivan report put out in the, by the province by this judge, and he looked into education. And one part of this report said that education should be power to, not power over. So it should be everybody having power to learn, accomplish a goal together. And that was just, I so believed in that. But also, I learned in my teaching experience that the teacher needs to be in charge. And it is a hierarchy of, okay, I want them to learn, but they need to listen to me and they need structure. So that was uh, another place where I did a lot of learning. Well, let's get into that a little bit. So how did you get involved in the school system from uh, being in a veterinary clinic, you said in Langley? And so Mm -hmm. how did you make that transition? When I, I went through a divorce and I found I had three children and myself with three children to support and no career. So I did my high school equivalency and started at back at university. And my kids were four, five, and seven. And so, and I, I had to uh, get through really fast because I needed to start supporting them fast. And did uh, two years at Kwantlen College and then got into the teaching program in Simon Fraser and finished my Bachelor of General Studies and my teaching degree and started teaching. So you said you had to do it pretty quick, so you got through it pretty quick. I did. Maximum was allowed five courses and I jammed in six. Plus I worked, plus I looked after the kids. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they were happy times. They were happy times. <laughs> the divorce was not happy. I was very sad over that. But then there were like, I felt like I was free and it was really good. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that to happen. I thought everything was in shambles at that point and it was over. And I loved it when I went back to school. I was really good at it actually, which I had never been good in school before. And yeah, it was great. So were you finding a love for the subject matter or a love for succeeding, a love for being around other students? What what were you finding that you were loving? Well, I was 34 and all my classmates were 18. And so that was, it was really wonderful. It was, there were a few other mature students and got to really enjoying the other students as well. And there was so much to learn. I was doing a lot of other things while I was at school I got to see a lot of adults and then I had my kids and then my studies and I was flying because I felt like I was free. I was just lifted from this weight and I could do what I wanted and there was so much to learn and I had always hated school and I loved school all of a sudden and I was taken seriously. 
it was really neat. I was on a high. I, th- those were very happy times. How so, do you mean you were taken seriously? Well, it was a rough divorce, and I realized I, I needed to get a better education. So I went to Kwantlen College. Was just it, they had stopped registration. I drove there, and they had stopped registration. They had closed the door, and there was a back door that was open and I walked in and there was a man sitting there and I said, I need to register. He said, well, what what do you want to do? And I wasn't quite sure. I said, well, I think I want to be a lawyer. And he said, fine. And he took me seriously. He didn't laugh. He said, well, uh, what have you got? Well, I, I had wanted to go to school before. These are true confessions, my goodness. But I had been at university before and had flunked out. And so I didn't qualify as a mature student because I had been to university. So a mature student is somebody who hadn't been to university before, straight out of college. So, uh, And they wouldn't take me at university because of my poor record. So I couldn't start. So I said that I had just hadn't been to university. So I did my high school equivalency and just started from scratch and doubled up my courses and I got through. Yeah, I got in. It's great. I was desperate. I needed to get my life back on track and I needed to be self-sufficient. I'm always really uh, blown away about the internal strength that women have in particular in situations like that because my mom's story is not too much different from that. And and when you're describing that to me, I I think of her strength and it mirrors what you're telling me. And it's pretty amazing. I have a a lot of respect for uh, what women are able to do to provide for their children because I guess that Mm -hmm. was your motivating factor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted my kids to know that they they were well cared for and loved and, and they, they didn't have to worry about where their next meal was or anything like that. Nice. All right. Well, let's... Um Let's go back. Back right. to you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned growing up uh, around Windsor, Ontario. Yes. All right, and you mentioned spending a lot of time outdoors hiking with your family. Mm-hmm. Okay. We went. Uh, there's all of Essex County, and at the very end is Point Pelee, where there's a provincial park or national park. I'm not sure. Uh, and we often went there hiking weekends. We also did skiing. We went to uh, Lake Erie to swim. Okay, so it was five kids and two parents out out on the trail hiking. Yeah. Right on. What were those memories like for you? I actually always wanted to see my horse. (laughs) (laughs) So I was always trying to get to my horse. Yeah. Okay, so it was like, get me off this trail. I want to go see my my silver monarch. Yes, exactly. Maybe I was a difficult kid. Five siblings. Where are you in that position? I'm the second oldest. I have an older brother. So I was the oldest girl. And what is your older brother's name? Raynaud, and he's in China. He got married to a Chinese woman, and he's working there now. Okay. How long has he been in China for? Uh, about 14 years. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the, you're the uh, second oldest, the first oldest daughter. And so the rest of your siblings, are they uh, pretty much around the same age? Uh, no, it's quite a, there's a big difference between all of us at five years. And yeah, my parents really spread it okay. out. Let's talk about your parents. Uh, okay. you, you mentioned your mom earlier, but um, tell us about your mom. What Tell us about your mom. My parents came here after the war uh, from Holland and they actually didn't come here. They went, my father was a mining engineer. During the war, he was in the Dutch underground and then he finished his studies after the war and got a a job with an American company and went to Africa. And he was writing to my mother and wanted her to come 
but the company would only pay for a wife to come and not a girlfriend. So they got married by proxy. All right. Loophole. Yeah. And so they got married like that. And uh, he was in the jungle at the time. And a runner came through the jungle, gave him a telegram that said, you are married. So that's how they got married. He has a picture of himself sitting there uh, being served a bottle of wine in the bush by himself. <laughs> Lucky guy. Yeah. So they came back. Uh, he was working for an American company. And they came back to the States and had a, a wedding there. And then, uh, so they were both Dutch, and they were trying to figure out what to do next. And then they went to Bolivia, to another mine in La Paz, and my brother was born there, my older brother. And my, my mother has high blood pressure, and the high altitude was very hard on her, especially having the baby. So they, they left there and went back to Holland and tried to figure out where to go, and they ended up coming to Canada. My father got a job in a mine. He was a professional mining engineer, but they weren't taking professionals. They were only taking workers. So he got a job as a worker in a mine in Valdor, Quebec. That's the Valley of Gold, Quebec. And I was born there. Okay, so you were born in uh, Quebec? Yes. All right. Yeah. Valdor. Valdor. So you're born in Valdor, mm -hmm. and you uh, you eventually moved to Windsor. And what was that experience for you like growing up in Ontario? Well, we didn't move directly to Windsor. My father had mining jobs all over Canada, eastern Canada. We went to New Brunswick and other places. I have a sister born in New Brunswick. And then finally, my father got out of mining and got into material handling. And when they first came, you were not allowed to take any money out of Holland because they needed all the money after the war. And then you could access your own money after that. And so he took some money out and bought a company and did conveyor belts, designing and building of conveyor belts. And it was in Windsor, Ontario. So he did assembly lines for the car companies, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, and also assembly lines for Heinz, moving ketchup bottles and that sort of thing. And, you know, and anything he built, things that moved products along, uh, moving suitcases at airports and all, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Any, anytime their conveyor belts were needed, mm -hmm. for sure. In Windsor, I've never been to Windsor, but I've heard that it's got similar climate to uh, the West Coast where we're at right now. Is that is that correct? Yeah, Windsor is across from Detroit, so it's sometimes called Motown, Motor City. And cars were big, huge. You know, it's where all the cars are made. And a lot of guys dropped out of school to get a job on the line, and that was very highly paid, but mind-numbing. Sure, I guess just right standing at a station generally and just working mm -hmm. on one one piece. But, but if you had a, a job on the line, you could uh, get yourself a car, maybe two cars, own a home and then a cottage. So it was good money. So the thing was get that job and get into the union. Those were different times than they are now. They were boom times. They were boom times, yeah. Yeah. All right, so moving into the uh, more of the present. So now you're living on Pender, and um, maybe we just fast-forwarding right up to the present right now and uh, finding out about Julia and uh, her her passions and uh, her dreams right now. What What's uh, occupying your time right now? What are you uh, doing and what are you thinking about lately? <sighs> One of the things that is really important to me is creativity. And I've always said to my kids, it's really important to live a creative life. It's 
more important than earning lots of money is having good values and living uh, creatively. And so I was thinking I wasn't that creative. And um, so I've started this year, uh, I've done a filmmaking course. I'm, I'm in the middle of that. And also I started painting with, I took a course from Judy Walker and I have an, an area in the house where I have my paints. And I've always loved gardening. I love gardening. And I love cooking too. And I love the whole bringing bringing all the links together of growing the food and listening to the land and then cooking the food and then serving it. I want to feed the world. I want people to live sustainably and walk gently on the earth and spread this wonder around and do things outside of the realm of money. We're too money-oriented. Well, tell me a little bit more about that, about uh, growing the food and then preparing it and serving it. What What is it about that uh, really, really inspires you? Well, I love this island. And I have the feeling that, you know, when I walk on the island and, and just sit with the land and then slowly start to work with it and grow things, it's just so amazing. I planted uh, kale when I first came and I'm still using that kale seed from that. And it just self-seeds and comes on its own now. And the regenerative aspect of that, I just think it amazes me. And to bring it from just supporting the soil and working with it and then having food year-round from that is a fascinating thing. I, I look at it and wonder that this can happen. It's not costing anything except my labor and my consideration for it, watering it and boosting the soil in an organic way. I think it's great. And I, I'm upset by the way everything is so monetary in the world right now and this growing disparity and how the next generation doesn't have the chances that used to be there. Yeah, for sure. It is interesting that just in talking about food and how I was born in a suburb and went to the grocery store, fast food places for food all the time. And the concept of how food is grown was very foreign to me until I was in my 20s and spent some time on farms. But I think it's a, a really engaging, fascinating process to be a part of because we're so disconnected from that. Yeah. And seeds, when you think of the wonder of seeds and how one plant can give you more seeds than you could ever even use. And it's so regenerative and it's so giving. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a world of abundance. And, and I think that we are led to believe that it's not an abundant place and that there's all sorts of limitations. And I, I think that's just a, a bit of a program that we're being fed personally. Mm -hmm. When I tell people that we got our seed from some peppers that we bought, they're like, you can grow those? I'm like, yeah, you can. I heard of somebody who had pole beans, that these beautiful scarlet runner beans, they grow up and they're bright red and just beautiful. And they had them on the front porch and then they had the beans in there. They said, you can eat those? They didn't know that. 
Yeah. Well, I don't think that's uncommon. It, you know, I'm surprised about how little I know about things in general, just where I'm at in my life right now. Mm-hmm. That, uh, it amazes me how, you know, limited my knowledge is because just pigeonhole yourself into um, understanding, uh, you know, a lot about a certain subject. And there's there's a lot to know about what goes on in the world. But in terms of uh, something as uh, universal as eating and what mm-hmm. you can consume and can't, it, it's amazing how, how yeah. little we do know. Yeah. Even it amazes me that things we think are annuals here are perennial, like peppers. They can last for years. If you dig them up and bring them in, they'll come with more peppers over the winter and you can plant them outside again. And they, they're perennials and they produce like crazy. You can get more than you can ever eat. Nice. Are you using a greenhouse for the peppers or just... A- we bring it in t- into the kitchen because we have a skylight and some windows, so we put it there. But we have a problem that white fly comes in, so it didn't work this year. But we have had years where we've planted it back into the garden. We're always experimenting and trying new things. Well, speaking of experimenting, you mentioned creativity, and it's a really important thing to you. And I just want you to speak to that for a little bit and hear more about uh, why creativity is so important to you. I think listening to the land and seeing, like when I went for the vision quest, I wanted to listen to myself and find out where my path needed to go. And although I got to the place that I was never going to have a relationship, I could listen to myself Sometimes you see things happening um, that you weren't expecting, like the beans. I love beans. They're so virtuous. And uh, seeing the the beans from a previous year put up shoots, and they don't need to be replanted. The roots get stronger and stronger, and you don't have to reseed it at all. I, I find that amazing. And nobody told me that. Actually, somebody did tell me that. I read it in the Pender Post, I think, that somebody did that. And there's so much to learn from other people as well. Creativity. Yeah. Well, you talked about that you're getting involved in painting. Yes. And that's, has that something that you've done before or? No. Okay. So brand new. So tell us about what it feels like to uh, take on painting right now. Just so good. My, my son is an artist. Actually, all my kids are artistic in different ways, but I have encouraged lots of people to become artists. And I thought, I would like to do this. So I started taking classes and I was just so happy playing with color and learning about proportion and composition and how colors mix. And it was like it put me into another zone and I was just really happy there. And then actually it was doing it that was making me so happy. And then my son said he really liked something I had done. That was so nice. I'm so glad. And and I have my paintings all over the house and I just started painting and I'm just, I love it. So what kind of things are you painting right now? My favorite color is blue. So I use blue a lot. I also like yellow. I'm just playing with color, abstract. I don't have a lot of technique, but I'm enjoying the fullness of color and blending them and messing with them and juxtaposing different things. I'm doing collage. It's like it's opened up a whole new world of just playing with canvases. And I really like the sense of what I'm working on too, like the different textures. I like really good quality paint and I like good quality canvases. And it makes a huge difference. If it's not good quality, it doesn't feel as good. Yeah, so I'm truly following my bliss in that area. 
That's great. That's good. Right yeah. on. Joseph Campbell. <laughs> Joseph Campbell? He said, follow your bliss. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So also you said that uh, you're currently uh, taking a film making course. Mm-hmm. How's that going? That was amazing. Part of the amazement of this course was the kids that were there. There were all these young kids. There was, I would say there were more kids than adults and they were amazing. They were really creative. And I went to this, what was it? Two or three hour class. And I so enjoyed being with these kids in the room with all their ideas and enthusiasm and running around and looking at films. And we wrote a script together, a screenplay. It was fabulous. It was just such fun. So, and, and I talked to one of the other adults there and I was talking about how I'm, I'm always moved by musical instruments. I'm not that musical. I love music, but I was telling him that there's this story of this neighbor I had who, whose son died. And every time I think of it, I get very emotional because she gave her son's child's size violin to a violin teacher, Denny Gertz, on the island. And it just moves me, that whole story. And stories about musical instruments are fascinating. And I asked him if he had a, an instrument. The man I was talking to was Daniel Lapp. His, his kids were in it, and he was in it too. If he had a, a musical instrument, and his eyes lit up, and he told me this wonderful story about his grandfather's fiddle and how he has inherited it. And I said, I want to make a film of you. And he said, yes, and we're doing it. All right on. That's yeah, great. It was very fun. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Right. It's amazing what you can find by asking questions from people, you know, and just sort of... It is. Yeah. It is. And I always wanted to sing. I just love the idea of singing. And I don't have a good sense of pitch or anything, but I love the idea of singing. And I joined the choir. And as a kid, I always joined the choir. And they ended up asking me to kind of mouth the words because I put everybody else off off pitch. So my neighbor was uh, the choir master and he said, come on, you know, join. I think he needed more male voices and Gregory has a very good voice. And so I was kind of involved too. And so I got some lessons and joined the choir and they were doing uh, musicals and they needed somebody to come on and have a sing a part that was a terrible singing part. Like they had to be a terrible singing, terrible voice and loud. And I got the part. So I did a solo (laughs) and I just loved it. And it was like, I filled that dream and I'm not going to burden the choir with my voice anymore, but it was just great. It was wonderful. Yeah. I was in the choir this uh, past winter and I'd never sung in a choir before. Mm -hmm. I don't really do a lot of singing and it was so enjoyable. Yes. It was such a nice uh, process to be involved with. And uh, every Monday night to go for practice, mm-hmm. my wife and I, and we'd come home with Singer's High. I didn't know that existed mm-hmm. before. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling. Well, I just want to lead into uh, the second of uh, the traditional questions we're going to ask on this show is, uh, who on Pender Island has helped you along the way? Gregory. He just, he believes in me. He believes that, you know, he supports me and and encourages me. It's just been wonderful. 
he had a part in a play and I was helping him to work out how that character should be acted because the script wasn't making any mis- any sense. It was Mary Chase Harvey and he had the part of this thug working in a mental institution and the words weren't like he had memorized them, but they didn't make sense. We looked at the script and we worked through it. I was the other characters and I said, no, it should be this way. And he said, God, Julia, you should be directing. And yeah, then I started directing. Yeah. And, yeah. And so we we direct together. We co-direct. It's wonderful. Okay. So Gregory has been your uh, your big help on uh, on Pender. Well, let's talk yeah. about time with directing and Solstice because I'm familiar with that because I was, I was in a couple of plays that you directed. But let's hear about your experience about what it felt like to direct plays for the first time. The first time, well, it was with Gregory there. I was helping him or we were working together. And that's what I like about directing, actually, is working with people and finding out how does this feel, um, uh, finding what, what makes the script come alive. And I just feel at home in this role of directing. I just feel the minute I'm directing, I'm, I'm confident. I know I can do this. I feel like I have I found the perfect role for me. I just enjoy it. Right on. It's an amazing opportunity. So you're doing it through the uh, Solstice Theater, which is the uh, community theater on uh, Pender. Yes. And uh, it seems as if there's a lot of opportunity for uh, anybody to really get involved. Oh, yeah. And that's the wonder of Pender Island, actually, is that you have people from all over the island acting, singing. If you want to do something, you've got to do it yourself because there's just so many people. And working with all this talent is just great. I don't think people would shine like they do here in a big city. They wouldn't have the opportunity. There's a few stars, but here anybody can direct, act, sing. There's a chance for everything. Yeah, definitely. And I feel the same way. I feel as if I never would have had the opportunity to act in a play if I was living in a city. But it was really fortunate that it was in a small community and that opportunity was available. And for anybody listening who is uh, interested in doing any kind of acting or directing, uh, we mentioned the Solstice Theater in a previous interview I did. But from firsthand experience from Julia and myself, (laughs) what a wonderful thing it is. It is wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Right on. It really is. I guess going back into, uh, let's let's delve back and maybe you mentioned your father in different places that he worked throughout the world. And, and it's kind of wild actually bouncing around and mm-hmm. working in different mining situations. But uh, mm-hmm. tell us a bit about your dad. Well, both my parents were born in Holland. My father was, his father was a doctor. Uh, he was one of four kids and he's still alive. He's 98, living in Saanichton, independent managing on his own. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he's writing his memoirs. He's uh, self-published several books since he came. Something that was very hard for him in his 70s. When my parents were in their 70s, they split up. And my father came to live with me for about 10 months. And then he got his place in Saniston where he is now. And yeah, he's re- he's still independent. And he, he self-published a few books. What uh, were the books about? He did something on business, but then his next book was about uh, mining in Liberia and another book, Mining in Bolivia, and then about his father. And now he's writing his memoirs. And he wrote a Family Tree, a book about the family going back to, he went to Holland to research it, and it goes all the way back to the 1100s. Wow. Yeah. So, and it's quite a book. 
I'm always kind of blown away with people who wind up uh, writing multiple books or even one because mm-hmm. I've sat down and tried on a number mm-hmm. of occasions and it's quite a process. Yeah. My father is driven. He's driven. He's driven. Yeah. He decides to do something and he does it. Is that a trait that's trickled down through the children, you would say? or uh, Probably. Yeah. Probably. Of all your uh, siblings, who's the, the most driven, the most similar like your dad in that, that way? My dad is one of a kind. Nobody is like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> he's just one of a kind. You know, he's, he's very extreme. Very extreme. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So one of a kind, very extreme. Very extreme. All right. Very strong. Very much. He finds it very difficult to, he has to have absolute control on everything. You walk in the room and he wants to tell you where to sit and what to do. And it's actually become very difficult to be around my father. Okay. But that's amazing. He's 98 years old and living on his own. Yes. Yes. And he hires people. He fires people. He, you know, he needs help and then he will arrange it himself. If anybody arranges anything at all for him, he won't go with it. He has to have complete and utter control over everything. Okay. Yeah. He's driven to have control, it sounds like. right. Okay. Sounds like an intense man. He's very intense. Very intense. Yeah. All right. And growing, being 98 is not for the weak of, it's, you have to be strong and he is strong. And he doesn't want to go into a home, and I don't think he will. He's just going to be strong and ride mm-hmm. it out, from what you're saying. Yep. He's had two knee replacements, a hip replacement, and he broke his other hip recently. So he's uh, the joke is he's got nothing else to break. So he, <laughs> there he is, and he's walking. And he had to have a, a walker for a while. He fought that. And then he was just with a stick, and now he's walking without again. Wow. Well, we're nearing the end of our time together here, but we're not quite at the end. Uh, I just want to maybe just throw an open question your way and just see if there's anything that, that you want to speak to at all that because uh, you knew this interview was coming and uh, asked you a couple questions beforehand. But there's, is there anything that uh, you feel like you want to mention within this interview that uh, we haven't touched on? You, you asked me about people who inspire me and that I think the youth really inspires me. The fact that they uh, so many young people are coming. Well, to me, you're young, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's young people coming here, building their own ho- homes or taking places and fixing them up. And against all odds, living creative lives. And it's not an easy system to do that in. And I look at how well they're handling things and I'm, I'm pleased to know them and, and witness how people are getting more creative in their living arrangements too, living together and building tiny homes and managing to live with less and making it into a project. I think it's amazing. It's inspiring to know all this. And, and the kids, they're so into treading softly on the earth and saving it. And yeah, I think there's a lot to be thankful for here. And I I think that that's probably more apparent witnessing those things being on a small island versus being in a city. Would you say that's correct? I think you witness a lot more on a small island because you know the people. You know more, you know, you see them in the grocery store, in the bank, and then you see them uh, singing in the choir or on stage having an acting part and, you know, to be in the audience and say, oh, 
that solo was done by the woman who makes sushi, you know? <laughs> That's so amazing. Actually, it strikes me that I've never been to so many funerals because uh, in the city, you don't know that many people. And here, you know them and you're involved in, you don't just go to the funeral, but uh, like Gregory has built the casket for somebody and then he's been the pallbearer for somebody who he didn't even know and carried the coffin in his van and been involved in setting up funerals and weddings and all these sorts of things. It's been, it's so small, it's small scale, and so much is possible to do without having it all based on money. Right. That's so fascinating what you just mentioned about having that uh, connection to people up until the time that they're gone and and having that be uh, abundant for maybe lack of a better word, but it just happens on a frequency that you wouldn't necessarily uh, mm-hmm. have happen in the city situation. Yeah. It's a very comforting place to be. When somebody has a baby, people bring them food so that they don't have to cook and their family is uh, cared for. It's just a typical Pender thing. Yeah. And it and it seems, I don't know if it's with Facebook or the internet being more prolific than it was before, I, but food trains are a very common thing on the island, I've yeah. noticed in the last year or two. I, I don't know if I'm late to the game, but I've really noticed that they've become a quite a popular thing. And what a beautiful thing that is. Oh, yeah. And potlucks. I think those are fabulous things where the person, you can get together and not one person has to do all the cooking and everybody pitches in. When people come to on Pender, sometimes they even bring their own chair and their plate and everything else to make it easy on the host. It's fabulous. Yeah. Right on. I I was at the disc golf park yesterday and I ran into a large group of people from Vancouver and they were asking, how do you wind up living here? How how do you make this work? And I couldn't help but see the reflection of myself 10 years ago asking that question to somebody and looking for some sort of answer. And what this podcast is generally aimed towards is people on Pender to listen Mm -hmm. to about people in the community. But I'm sure this is going to reach out to people who are living beyond Pender Island. And I think it's a really interesting snapshot of different intangible things that occur on the island Mm -hmm. that uh, you can't really sum up in a short conversation. No. And I I was actually told, wait till you're here for a little while, you'll be dying to get off the island. Like you just, like I got to go to town. I have never had to go to town. What? Really? You've never felt that? love this place. Every time I have to leave for a medical or something like that, I... Love it when I get back. The best thing is when I come off the ferry and I'm back and I smell the pender air and I'm home. I love it. I do. We do go to Mexico for a week or so, and that's nice, but it's so good even then when I come home. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end this uh, interview. That's a really, really great way to end. So, Julia, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Oh, thank you. This was really fun. Right on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, I'd just like to thank you all for listening again. And actually, we'll be back next week with another episode. So thank you very much for tuning in and listening to us. And enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you, Christopher. This was a wonderful experience for me. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. All right. Well, in honor of that interview, I decided I'd go for a walk down Clam Bay Road. Clam Bay is located on North Pender Island. 
and it basically runs east to west. And I've just passed Clam Bay Farm, a beautiful farm with a gorgeous expansiveness of a vineyard out front, and I've just entered into my favorite part of Clam Bay Road. It's a, a canopied area of cedar and fir, and on the ground there's a ton of ferns and salal. It's usually a little dark in here, but really green. However, today it's the day after a snowfall. So I'm sure you can hear the crunching of snow underneath my feet as I walk on this beautiful, cold, sunny day. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.